What is your major malfunction, numbnuts? Didn't mommy and daddy show you enough attention when you were a child? And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Oh, yeah. who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? Oh, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. Uh oh. You, your sister's been wrong. And other people have remembered. They come back to us and they say, hey, don't worry, don't be afraid, ever, because this is just for her. The truth shall set you free, but first, it will piss you off. Naughty by Nature, with Nature Boy. Interesting people, with interesting ideas, for an interesting conversation. Welcome everybody to the show. I'm your host, Nature Boy, and this is our premiere episode. What's the show about? Simple. It's about getting people together with interesting ideas for an interesting conversation. That is the mission of the show. So a little background on me, your host, Nature Boy. I've been an MC and a producer for close to 20 years now and have produced everything from music festivals to podcasts and just about everything in between. In addition, I have emceed for over 30 Grammy Award winners and a handful of Emmy Award winners. You could say I've been around the block a few times, have the scars and t-shirts to prove it. So now on to the show. Our first, or should I say premier guest tonight is a dedicated family man, a small business owner. He is the host of the amazing Ripple Effect podcast, as well as the host of the best panel show on the internet, the Union of the Unwanted. And considering this gentleman is the one that initially planted the seed for me to do my own show about a year and a half ago, I thought it only apropos to have him as my first guest. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show, the incredible Ricky Vorandes. Hello, Ricky. How are you doing today? What's up, Nature Boy? Congrats on your first episode. I'm so excited about you and this journey and and where the show's going to go and and all the things we're all going to learn watching and listening and uh we're all going to grow together i'm sure so uh it's really a pleasure to be the first guest on your first episode and uh hopefully i don't let you down <laughs> you never do and hopefully i will not let you down i'll do my best i will do my best um considering that you're the one that initially planted the seed about a year and a half ago when i was producing for the ocelli effect and at the time, I was like, no, not ready, man. No, something inside me says, no, it's not the time. It's not the time. Well, now is the time. And I've been, as you know, all the work that goes into doing a quality show, my philosophy is the Adam Curry philosophy. Good content and a very well-produced show to deliver a good product been a producer for over 20 years and I'm kind of a perfectionist and unfortunately I am my own worst critic but it's been a fun journey it really has in when I first started this project well close to four months ago just getting everything together for a show and learning 
everything that I need to learn. There are so many things that I had to learn, purchase, and put together for this one day. And hopefully, well, not hopefully, many, many, many shows to come. Because I kind of view this in a unique way, but I'm a kind of a unique guy, if you really get down to know me, is that I'm producing this as a hobby, right? I have a day job. I do not quit my day job. I learned that 20 years ago when I started producing. Always have a steady source of income. And I'm more or less viewing it as an art form because I think that conversation, presentation, and public speaking is an art form. And in that, I want to try to do the best job that I can. Take all the skills that I've accumulated over the years, throw them up against the wall, and see what sticks. So yeah. quick question to you, what started, I mean, what was the impetus for you to start a podcast and when did you get that impetus? Yeah, it, it, it's funny because it's, uh, you know, my life journey was kind of uh, probably similar to many other people's where I kind of just felt like I was like a rat on a wheel, just kind of running in place and I felt unfulfilled and uh, it Back in the day, I was always a very like artsy uh, kind of guy. I loved music, loved poetry, loved drawing, loved just anything that kind of sparked imagination or exercised that muscle. And uh, so music was kind of my outlet. And and uh, it gave me a reason to write. It gave me a reason to play. It gave me a reason to tap into inner thoughts and emotions and traumas and all that type of stuff. And then uh, the as we got older, it got harder and harder to keep the band together. And uh, that's a, another common theme that I'm sure many people can relate to. It just when you're working with others, it, it just it's really hard to uh, all agree on everything and everyone be as committed to the same goal. You know, uh, egos can get in the way. Um, pers other personal priorities can get in the way and it gets difficult. And uh, so and then I end up deciding that, like, hey, you know what, like, let me just do a solo project. And um, because I just needed something, I needed something artistic to do. And uh, so I created a solo music project called Theory Six. And it was my, uh, you know, my my solo project. And uh, I was brand new to creating music on my own. But I'm like, you know, what? I'm pretty OCD. And I'm pretty um, just, you know, a perfectionist where I just, well, you know, when I start something, I that's why if I ever start something, like I have to make sure that I'm like, okay, do I have the time to do this? And how do I actually want to do this? And I really think it out because I know once I start it, I get so obsessed with it that I, it'll consume all my thoughts and thinking and free time and, and whatnot. And, um, and I've done that with just about everything in my life. Anytime I've really uh, said, hey, I'm going to go for this, I, I give it my all. And uh, so I did that with music. And I, you know, I had the Theory 6 music project. It, it, it was really time consuming uh, because I would write the music all by myself. Then I would, you know, play the guitar riffs. I would create the drum machine uh, beats. I would play the bass guitar, keyboards, all this, do the vocals. And then I'm like, I don't like this, <laughs> you know? And then I'm like, let me, I have to start over or change something. And when you're in a band, it's much easier to, 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 
uh, sample new ideas because it's like when I was in a band and I had other members, uh, we'd be like, hey, let's try the song this way. And everybody would play their instrument and we try it that way. But when you're doing it solo, um, it's really just kind of in your head. And then you have to kind of put it all together uh, in Pro Tools or whatever program you're using. GarageBand is another popular one. And once you put it all together, it might not sound the way you imagine it to sound. So either you have to tweak it or you start over, which can be, you know, time consuming. So once, uh, uh, you know, during this process of doing music, which I, I love doing, and you can still find um, Theory 6 music and uh, the EP on iTunes and Spotify and, and many places. And um, d during this, I really got into uh, listening to podcasts. And, you know, I'm, I'm out of high school, right out of high school, I, I started working full time, and I was doing a lot of traveling. And podcasts were kind of like a, a new media at the time, for, at least for myself, I know that like, we always, like, everybody feels like they're late to the game. Um, you know, I'm sure you feel like that. I felt like that in 2013, when I started. And I, uh, when I was listening to podcasts, one of the ones that really caught my ear, and it, you know, I was a fan of his stand up, but I wasn't a huge, a huge fan uh, of his per se. Um, but I loved his his podcast because he had a lot of thought provoking guests and people that I wasn't aware of. You know, I I remember now somebody who's a dear friend now, Sam Tripoli. I remember hearing Sam Tripoli on the show, and he had really interesting ideas and and whatnot. And you know, people like Graham Hancock. Uh, the first time he was on there and and so many other uh mark sisson the first time he was on there so many great guests that i'm just like wow this is this is cool because each episode is a different topic and somebody like myself who gets bored with topics it was the perfect show because instead of just listening to a sports show that's always about sports or a history show that's always about history i could you know just each day or each couple of days listen to a episode and it'd be something new and something um, thought provoking. You never knew what you're going to get. And I remember being so obsessed with it because the thing is, I love history. I love, um, you know, just philosophy. I, I love anything that's thought provoking or even just people just sharing their own personal ideas or stories or wisdom. And, uh, and, and, but I couldn't really get that uncensored. And I feel like podcasts were one of the few places where I feel like this is just a recording of people having a conversation there's it doesn't seem like i'm being you know uh pushed in any direction any ideology it doesn't seem like there's a a really hidden agenda where they're trying to pretend they're um they're this person but they're really this other person and they're trying to manipulate me it never felt like that at all it just felt really organic and somebody like myself who loves going out to eat and having a drink and having a cigar and, and a lot of these things that i enjoy it's not so much about the cigar or the, the, you know, having a nice dinner or a glass of wine or whatever, but it's about the whole experience of like, you know, what else are you enjoying when you do those things? Conversation and company. And it forces us to talk. And, you know, I have friends that are um, uh, from uh, Middle Eastern and they're big in a hookah. And, you know, I remember telling them like one thing I love about hookah is forces it, it forces all of us to hang out because we're sharing the hookah uh, bong and, and we're, you know, we're trying it. Everybody's like, Oh, uh, I like this flavor. I like that flavor, but it forces you to talk and it forces you to communicate. And uh, so, you know, that was one of the things that I, I thought about in regards to podcasts. I'm like, wow, it's just like, it's like one of those conversations, those deep conversations I have over a whiskey and a cigar with some friends. 
but I'm archiving it, I'm recording it in the same way that I enjoy having those conversations or being a part of those conversations or sometimes just witnessing other people have those conversations and and and, and just listening to it and learning from other people's experiences. Why wouldn't other people get the same type of benefit out of listening to those type of conversations? So that's kind of was my thinking. And I remember pitching it to who uh, one of my best friends and he was my co-host at the time, uh, Dave Kranacki. And he, I told Dave, I'm like, you know, Hey, I'm thinking about starting a podcast. And he's like, what the hell is a podcast? And he, and then I'm telling him and I'm, and he's like, so we're just going to talk. Cause I, you know, I, I wanted to do a very Joe Rogan esque type of show. So I'm like, we're not going to have any real topics. We're just kind of going to casually talk about whatever's on our mind, anything interesting that we've read, anything interesting that we've heard, any personal life experiences we want to share. And, like I, I explained to him, I'm like, it's no different than when we're at a bar or out to eat and we're having a conversation. The only difference is it's going to be recorded and we're going to share it. And uh, and of course, he, you know, he found it kind of silly and he didn't really quite get it. But at the time, I, uh, you know, and it, I think episode one of the Ripple Effect podcast, and I'm pretty sure I um, I clipped it and put it on my clips channel on YouTube. But uh, I, I said in 2013, this is going to be the future media. And uh, and I knew it because it was the it, it seemed like the one place. Obviously, I've been going down these rabbit holes for a long time. And it and I know, you know, how strong the censorship was on social media platforms and, and YouTube and all these places. But I'm like, podcasts seem to be like the one place where like either they couldn't censor it. They didn't know how to censor it. Or it was just going underneath the radar. Nobody took it seriously enough to censor. And I'm like, it was the one place where I'm like, you can get real conversations. You can get controversial conversations about controversial topics without censorship. And I can get tons of different opinions and perspectives, which I couldn't do anywhere else. Because obviously on, on social media platforms, the social me media platforms control what narrative they want you to, to, to see and and who, you know, they're going to let those uh, those opinions reach. And then, you know, on on mainstream media, of course, that's being controlled by the, the marketers and advertisers and the people who are putting the commercials between the segments. So it just seemed like, you know, this could be the future. This could be the one place that you can't be censored because you can just put out an RSS feed and you can people can subscribe to it. And it just seems like there's less censorship here. So I really enjoyed this idea of like, you know, just like, okay, you know, I'm listening to podcasts. I'm enjoying podcasts. I feel like I can, I can hold a conversation. I have similar type of conversations with my friends. So instead of just going to work and, and enjoying these podcasts, which believe me, they were just my lifeline. They were a lifesaver because so many long commutes uh, at the time I was like doing a lot of work that was like an hour away, two hours away, sometimes two and a half hours away. So I'm spending you know, anywhere from like two to like four hours on the road. And I'm like, wow, one Joe Rogan podcast kills most of that travel. And the crazy thing is sometimes I would get to my destination and uh, and most people would be excited that they're there and they can get out of the car. But I'm so deep into this podcast and so deep and 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 interested in this conversation I get to my destination. I'm like waiting and I'm because I want to hear where this conversation is going. And I'm like, wow, this is just awesome, awesome content and just something very unique, um, you know, that you you can't really get anywhere else. So I'm like, why not? You know, why not give it a try? Why not uh, start a podcast? Worst case scenario, um, you know, 
I just feel like I'm doing something and it's that alone is fulfilling. And I remember just my personal experiences with music or drawing and creating art, whatever type of art it was, if no one heard it, if no one saw it, I still felt good and I felt more fulfilled or I felt like I was giving back to the universe or I felt like I was tapping into something internally just by creating it, even if nobody else was experiencing it or seeing it or witnessing it. And um, even with poetry, right? Like with, with music, uh, when you write lyrics, when you, you write poetry, uh, you try to tap into your most deepest internal thoughts and feelings and emotions, or maybe your most personal moments in, in your life. And just writing it down before I ever turned it into a song and sang it, um, I felt better just tapping into it. And there's something just nice and and felt like almost like I was going to therapy, like yeah. I was getting it off my chest. And um, so I'm like, you know what, podcasting will be very similar. And it gives me, you know, from a selfish perspective, it gives me a reason to reach out to people that I'm a fan of that I consume their content and get them on my show. And, and how else would I be able to get somebody that I find interesting to sit down for an hour if I don't have a podcast, right? Like I get to actually connect with people that I'm a fan of. And some of my first guests were uh, Daniele Bignelli, who uh, was a ro uh, Rogan regular for a long time. And he did uh, the Drunken Taoist podcast and History on Fire podcast. Uh, Dan Carlin was another um, early guest on my show who did uh, um, Hardcore History. Uh, Jason Permis from um, Loose Change. And now, obviously, he does a lot of other things. But uh, it was James Corbett, uh, Douglas Ruskoff, um, so many amazing guests. Uh, Dr. Brzezinski, uh, Dr. Gregory A. Smith, who did the American Addict uh, documentary and book about just our addiction to prescription pills. And, you know, all these amazing people that I'm a fan of their work. I've watched their documentaries. I've listened to their content. I've watched their content. I've read their books. And now I get to convince them to come on and talk for an hour. And, you know, like many people who start podcasts, I would write, I, I always say like, if I, if I, start a podcast when I had kids, uh, if I already had kids, it would be impossible for me to kind of uh, build it the way I did because I would spend so many hours late at night looking for contact uh, information. I would write them on every social media account that they had. I would look for um, email addresses on old Facebook accounts, on old websites to the books that they wrote in the past and just find contact information anywhere and just reach out. And I would just write tons of emails and like a handful of people would write back and say, sorry, you know, I can't, or I don't have time or whatever. And then a few people would say, yeah, I'll come on. And uh, like I said, some of the the really amazing, super nice guests that came on early and, um, and then little by little, just kind of, you know, didn't really have any real expectations. I mean, I, I remember putting out a first couple episodes and looking at download numbers and I'm like, who's listening to this? And I'm like, okay, this is cool. Some people are listening. And I, of, of course, like most people when they start a podcast or, and it's really just like most people when you're excited about anything that you're doing in your life, if it's a new diet, if it's a new exercise, if it's a new whatever, um, we can't stop talking about it. So of course, everybody close to me knew I was starting a podcast. So I figured they they might take a listen because every time I was hanging out with friends, I'm always like, yeah, you know, I'm thinking about starting podcasts. I'm thinking about starting podcasts. And, um, but slowly, it started growing and started getting more and more guests on and started getting some people that I was like super stunned by, um, you know, like just 
Jesse Ventura, Roger Stone, Eddie Bravo, um, Abraham Bolden, who was uh, the first uh, Black Secret Service agent on a presidential detail and as a JFK assassination whistleblower, uh, just all these, you know, historic figures like this and and uh, amazing, amazing people and just kind of started building and building and and Sean Stone came on and and, so, you know, ex-CIA, ex-FBI, other t- uh, whistleblowers like Thomas Drake from the NSA and uh, so many amazing guests and I just got obsessed with like learning from them, sharing their stories, having conversations with them, bouncing my ideas off them. And one thing that I've learned a lot too, just expressing your your ideas and opinions. Like when I'm thinking about something in my head, it can make sense. But then when I'm like forced to verbalize it, like when I'm on somebody else's show and when, you know, eventually I was getting asked to co- come on other shows and when I'm being interviewed, so I get asked something and I'm just like, okay, I start talking and I'm like, hmm, I'm like, I haven't really thought this out. Or, you know, it doesn't sound as good out loud as it did in my head. And it, it forced me to really like re- reflect a little bit on my ideas and perspectives. And and as time went by, you know, it's like that saying, the more you know, the the, the more you know, you don't know, you know. And, yeah. um, you know, when I first started the podcast in 2013, I was probably much more certain with my, my ideas and my opinions and perspectives. And as time went by uh, and having so many different people on and people from different backgrounds and, and, and philosophies and opinions, I started really questioning what I believed and why I believed those things. And, and really became like, I always tell my listeners, I'm like, it really became not just a journey for the listeners to learn, but it became a journey for myself to, to grow and learn. And throughout the whole journey of, of getting guests on and try to get fascinating people on and, and spark interesting and thought provoking conversations. I've grown a lot and I've learned a lot. And so it really, you know, that's kind of one of the the unique things about podcasting is that if you're going in, you know, with an open mind and you're, you're trying to really just bring in the most interesting guests and, and, and trying to create the most interesting conversations, you can't help but all grow together and go on this journey together. And, uh, you know, that's kind of what life's about. I mean, you probably have heard me say this on my, my podcast, and I'm sure my regular listeners have heard me say it a bunch of times. But like, I feel like life is a giant puzzle with millions and millions of pieces. And you know, at the end of your road and at the end of your journey, you're not going to gather all the pieces and you're not going to have the picture completely clear on what it is and what's our purpose and all those things. But one of the things we can do is try to gather as many pieces as possible and hope that at the end of the road, at the end of our journey, we at least have a better idea of what this is all about. And so it's just truth seeking and trying to understand the world and ourselves even more importantly. And, uh, and yeah, and just grow. So that's a really long, <laughs> really long answer to your, uh, your question. But yeah, I, I figured there's a lot of little, tidbits and details in my thinking and what um, inspired me to do it that I, I think is important and hopefully inspire other people to do it like yourself. Well, I'll tell you what, I couldn't have said it better. Um, listening to you go on that long answer for or what, what I always say. Um, yeah, here's the long answer for a short question, which I'd like. Um, it's as if you were talking about me as you, I mean, the ideas that you were hitting, I went through the very same thing on almost all of them from mixing music. Okay. I said that part of this process I've been working on is mixing music. And one of the things I like to do as a creative thing is to write simple 
songs, not complex songs, just I love the art of a simple song. So I created my theme music. And that's the first time I've ever mixed music. Oh, Lord. I thought, oh, it's not a big deal. I'll just drop in a drum track, lay down a bass track, blah, 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 be done. Boy, was I wrong. Just here's an example. Mixing my drum track. I've never mixed drums before. And I have a MIDI program in my Luna, my audio recording software, that is just a nightmare to use from the GUI. All right. But I did a basic track for Chuck Ocelli when I did his theme music. So I took it, recycled it, listened to it. And I was like, yeah, this sounds pretty good. I'm a rocking dude. You know, you know how your ego gets deflated when you present it to other people, like, especially friends that are like, dude, no. <laughs> so I took the drum track and Midnight Mike from OBDM, the funniest podcast out there. I, I sent it to him. I said, hey, man, can you give this a set of second ears? And he came back to me. He was like, um, you need to work on your drum mixing. This, this, and this need to change. You need to do this, this, and this, and this is how it needs to sound. So then I'm like, oh, oh, I guess I'm not that good. So I went through that process and learned how to mix drums, how to bring the snare up, how to bring the bass, how to make it sit, how to make everything glue together with the bass track and all that. And just that was a journey. Then it was a matter of mixing the music, recording the music, getting all the levels to sit, and then we get everything glued together. That process for a two-minute song, which is pretty much repetitive, took me almost two weeks just to get it to the point where it sounded acceptable. You know, um, another thing that I've, I've gone through is lighting. How do you do the set? that type of thing and what i learned right off the bat which i kind of knew from producing what looks simple most of the time is highly complex but if you put in the time to learn and then the time to actually produce it to the level no matter how much time it takes the outcome is generally worth it you know and then you brought up something else about guests. I got to give you a compliment, Ricky. You're one of my influences, right? I want you to know. Your guests are off the chart amazing. Amazing. I mean, you get these people like your Sam Tripoli's, Dr. Jessica Rose, by the way, thank you for the turn on that contact. And people like this. And I've often wondered, and I think you explained it in the beginning, how do you get these guests on? And it comes to doing the work. I've done it before, booking. You have to go out and you have to scrounge the internet for a decent contact. That could take an enormous amount of time. Then you have to contact that contact. Then you have to wait. And if they get back, it's kind of like fishing. Oh, I got a nibble, but you can't yank that pole just, just yet. You got to play it, play that big fish. And then the satisfaction of when you get a confirmation is in the fishing terms, the satisfaction of reeling in that 20-pound salmon, if you know what I mean. So, you know, it's it's an interesting process here. Um, you brought up a bunch of other things. Uh, one thing I, I want to touch bases on really quick is working with other people as opposed to being independent. 
you hit it right on the head. You have multiple people and multiple egos. Egos drive me crazy. I've seen the best projects get flushed down the toilet because of somebody's bloody ego. Personally, I keep mine in check. I try to at least. Um, but I found that by working for myself, doing this project here, this podcast, it gave me a freedom that I've never had before. No longer do I have to work with somebody else to try to find a guest to fit in with them or an idea here or there. I don't have to do that anymore. I want to get a guest on. I want to discuss a topic. And I now have the freedom to do that, which it's a newfound love, I should say. It's a newfound love. But enough about me. Hey, let's get into the meat of a good conversation here, if you don't mind. Let's go a little deep. Not quite as deep as we can go. You had a show recently and you brought up a really good topic, something that's been on my mind for many years. And that is the division of society. How we, not only here in our country, but globally, are being divided almost at a micro level. I mean, 20 years ago, you had the mainstay divisions. You had race, you had male, da, 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 da. that's old school. Now they've taken it to a whole nother level. Everybody's fighting with everybody. You have male versus females. You have pro-Palestinian, pro-Israeli, pro-Ukrainian, pro-Russian, pro male, gender, this, that, and everything. And I just see our society being systematically, and I mean this systematically and agendized, being divided. And it, I don't know if breaks my heart is the correct term, but my desire is that I want to see us all come together because this is the time when we as people all need to come together and to find commonality on our commonalities, if you will, and quit being systematically divided by the differences that we share. Just one man's opinion. What's your take on that? Well, I, I think when we talk about the Middle East, for example, we understand that one of the purposes of the Western powers, everything, you know, right, if you go all the way back to World War One and the fall of the Ottoman Empire and how the, the French and the British carved up the Middle East, and even, you know, to more current history, like Afghan and Iraq and those wars and battles in Syria and Yemen and, and we can go over and over again. Uh, there's just tons of examples of how we purposely destabilize things to eventually control them. And as long as it's destabled and people don't organize and people don't realize that like, hey, maybe the enemy isn't internal but it's external controlling us and motivate motivating us and and swaying us to hate one another then their focus will always be on each other and not on us and the thing is we understand that in regards to geopolitics and when you look at history you can also see that that strategy being used and you can see it being used over and over again throughout history but internally domestically they use the same tactics and it's the same idea. They weaponize everything. You know, they weaponize, um, you know, vaccines. They weaponize uh, climate change. They weaponize all these things. And 
you know, the immigrant discussion? Is it really about just trying to help poor immigrants who are trying to for this country? Or is it really about, you know, them trying to get, well, I mean, there's a lot of things, but for example, like the immigrant conversation, because it's kind of a hot button topic at the moment uh, and our borders and whatnot, uh, you can see on surface level, just like most things like climate change or anything else, you can easily be sold that it's it's for moral reasons. Like, oh, we just care about climate and, and you know, the horrors that he was are, are doing and all the negative impact we're having on the climate and environment and mother nature and all this stuff. But the truth is it's about control and it's about um, same thing with the, uh, with the, the immigrants and the borders. It's, there's always a greater plan. And sometimes when you're taking baby steps into uh, the going towards that plan you don't really understand it or, or it's hard for you to zoom out and see it i mean with covid it was the same thing like people couldn't understand that hey just shutting down for a week or two um was only the beginning of a greater plan and people people would get mad like oh just wear a mask what's the big deal it's just a mask and, and people didn't understand that many of us were getting upset and refused to to put on masks and refused to um you know get uh, the vaccine and all these things like we weren't getting mad about that one specific little thing we were getting mad about the fact that nobody else could see where this was heading and the immigrant things no different I, I there's a lot of theories on that right like there's theories on i think just in california which state it was that they just declared that every immigrant uh undocumented yeah. immigrant who joins the military will get a free citizenship so yeah that's that that's was, what's that i think that was was that not durbin who recently gave a speech in the halls of congress talking about basically our military for various reasons and i could do a full show on that as a former vet or a current vet about the military not meeting the recruitment requirements they're really low so his solution to it is let's give all these illegal immigrants, put them in the army and give them citizenship. What could go wrong there? And like you, I'm a student of history. And when you look at the life cycle of a empire, if you will, the Roman empire, the Greek empire, there are certain occurrences at certain parts of the life cycle. And one of them at the end of an empire's life cycle, two, one, and we are both experiencing this right now, is the inability to secure the border. And then two, having to rely on mercenaries or non-citizens to be your army. So those are two things that if you look historically, happen in all empires and we're experiencing right now. And then another thing that came to my mind is okay if they do do this plan and they bring in all these illegal immigrants and i use that term because i like to define terms illegal these are not immigrants who have come through the arduous and expensive process of becoming a citizen these are people that just come across the border and unlike times of the past where it was 
poor people that would come over so we could work and make money and send back their families from South America, Mexico. No, what we're finding is that the people that are coming across are from all over the world, from China, from Ukraine, from everywhere. And they're all, not all, but the majority that I've seen are military aged men, not families, not trying to make a better life. And soon as they get here, what do they get? They get a free plane ticket, a bus ticket, money on a debit card, probably more money than what I make doing a living. And they get a free cell phone. Hmm. What the hell, Ricky, could possibly go wrong with that? I'm also curious if they're going to use this whole scheme to eventually send them mail-in ballots because if they're citizens, they're going to have to have an address. So now you're getting all these immigrants who now can vote. And, you know, for me, it's like, okay, I can see that greater plan. Also, you're looking forward to the election. Why not get give all these uh, illegals citizen status, send them ballots. You kind of know how they're going to vote. I mean, the reason they're here, the reason they got their citizenship is because of people on the left or it's, you know, it's the government. So you're going to be pro-government. Who's more pro-government than people from the left who who just want government to be involved in everything? Um, so, yeah, well, without a doubt. And it, it just, you know, again, these are like baby steps in that direction. And I think from like the service level, like I get it. Like I'm an immigrant myself. I was born in Portugal. I came here when I was four. My parents came here uh, to, to, you know, financially try to get ahead and, and whatnot. Like I, I do sympathize with this, with these things, but I also understand if they really wanted to fix the immigration problem, another way of doing it is helping those countries. Like people don't want to leave their country. People are leaving their country because it's a disaster. And another thing about all this is like during the COVID lockdowns, Latin America was some of the strictest and they were the, you know, some of the ones that really bought in and and had the longest lockdowns so their economies got just you know demolished and that's probably some of the reason why a lot of these people are leaving because there isn't any work there because they had lockdowns for too long um and businesses shut down so it's like we're literally creating the problem you know it's problem solution right uh problem reaction solution it's same thing it's like they create the problem and then they give you this solution and it's like they created the problem i mean it's no different than like the drug wars and it's like oh we have all this you know uh, all these drugs coming into the us from the cartels uh by the way you know like we created the black market by making all these things illegal i mean we grew up in the era where marijuana was demonized and marijuana was like supposed to be the gateway drug to every criminal you know every eventual uh criminal so it's like okay what happened to this drug being super bad and being the worst thing ever and being the equivalent to all the other street drugs like you know ecstasy and, and cocaine and crack and whatnot and now me living in massachusetts around every corner there's you know a place where i can legally buy marijuana and nobody cares because you can tax it now and that's kind of you know the marijuana is a, a perfect example of how the government doesn't care about your well-being no. something is legal or illegal based on other motives it's not because they're protecting you not because they care about you it's um 
you know, uh, I, I'm very much into fitness and, and whatnot. And I've always really been into uh, homeopathic medicines and, and natural remedies and, and whatnot. And you see them demonize these natural remedies all the time with Kratom, right? I had uh, Chris yeah. Bell on my show and uh, he did that movie, uh, uh, A Leaf of Faith. He also did a bunch of uh, really popular movies like Bigger, Stronger, Faster and Trophy Kids and, and Prescription Thugs and all worth watching and all really good. And um, but he went on Rogan's show to p- promote his new documentary called A Leaf of Faith. This was some years ago, um, and eventually he came on my show too. And he he was trying to promote uh, this documentary because there's all these people who had uh, pill addictions, who had depression issues, all these issues, who were cured by this natural remedy, this tea called kratom, which was used in Asia for many many centuries and many years, and and. Uh, there's so just some great natural uh, uh, properties to it that that really help people with these issues. And there's no reason to demonize it. There's no reason to to make it a- illegal. There's no reason for any of that unless you feel like it was cutting into the profits of big pharma. And that's obviously what was going on around that time. You also start seeing all these, you know, magically start seeing all these stories of kratom overdoses and then deaths potentially linked to kratom. It's like all yeah. this nonsense. Same thing with like when COVID, when they're pushing the COVID narrative. Same, yeah. Every, everybody, Oh, this person died. They're COVID, you know, they were positive for COVID, but and then you read the article and you're like, well, they had cancer and they had this and they had that. It's like COVID didn't kill them. And, um, they might have tested positive for it, but it wasn't the cause of death. And um, so it just over and over again, you you see what the motives really are. And, you know, people have to wake up. And to me, it's like it's always mind boggling how how many things come to light, how many times Alex Jones is right. Right. Like the things that they say he's saying that are crazy. You're like, yeah, remember that thing you kind of laughed about him? Uh, you laughed at him about like. Yeah, kind of seems like some of it's true now, right? And yeah. uh and yet the next thing, the next thing that is too hard to believe for the average person, they will do the same thing again. It's the same routine of like they'll laugh at you, they'll tell you that that's a conspiracy theory, they'll tell you, and it's like, you know, it's like that saying it's probably Mark Twain quote, because every clever quote is typically a Mark Twain quote, but um, it's easier to trick somebody than convince them they've been tricked. And that's the average person. It's like you tricked them and now we're trying to convince them that they've been tricked and it's freaking impossible. It's an, it's impossible to shake them and wake them up and realize like, Hey, experts is just a term that they use. Like they're not, they, they, they are just as corrupt as the politicians. They are just as corrupt as the pharma. They're just as corrupt as anybody. I mean, there's stories and stories of experts being wrong and, and take straight up corrupt i mean to this day i know people i have met people that still worship anthony fauci i mean my god if one with all the information out about who that man was and his history and what he has done to society in my version he's a medical version of a henry kissinger if you want to know the truth and um it just amazes me to this day the amount and level of cognitive dissonance that exists in our society and the normies i have a lot of friends who are normies and i've learned a long time ago you just don't bring those things up because you'll get one of two things you'll either get the glossed over look uh, or you'll get that visceral anger reaction 
because you're trying to wake them up. And one thing that I've learned about waking people up, because as a side note, a long time ago, I used to try, I'm waking up the world. I'm going to save the world. I'm going to do this or that. Yeah, I learned that was a bunch of bullshit. Some people are easy to wake up, just like sleeping. Have you ever met, met people that when they fall asleep, you can't wake them up? You could shake them. You could blow a air horn in their ear and they're out for the count. Then you have other people that have varying ways of waking up. Some of them, yeah, you got to shake them hard, but they'll eventually come out. Other ones, you just kind of kind of tap them and they wake up. I see that as a metaphor for how society is. And one thing I like about podcasting and one thing that I've learned to value is that it's an easy way well, not an easy way, but it is a method by waking people up because knowing what level of cognizant dissonance they're in, I can affirm to certain podcasts that kind of break the ice. And because somebody with, quote, authority said the same thing I've been talking about for some reason because of, you know, cognitive dissonance, appeal to authority, logical fallacies, they tend to lock onto that more than just me who they've known for years, but a perfect stranger with authority, then the, the light will come on. And once that light has come on, then that kind of helps me to kind of slide into that window of opportunity and try to wake them up. Um, have you experienced anything like that with people or have you come to people that, hey man, no matter what you do or what, they ain't waking up? Yeah, no, there's definitely people in, in my personal life that I've, you know, argued with and butt heads with. And it's just mind boggling how emotional they will be over a topic they've done very little research on. It's like, so you emotionally have decided that this is your stance on this issue. I have logically decided based on the information I've gathered that this is my stance on this issue. And it to me, it's just it's mind boggling. It's I remember back in the day with vaccines, like when I were telling people, I'm like, my kids aren't going to get any vaccines. I'm not going to vaccinate any. And people look at me like I'm freaking crazy. Like they're just like, oh, my God, you're going to put your kids in danger. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. And I got that so much that response that I started questioning my own. And as a parent, right, like. You, you're like, well, what if I am fucking up? What if, what, what if I am putting my kids in danger? What if like there is some chance of my, what if my kid gets sick and it could have been really sick where he, he could, it could have been avoided if he got vaccinated. Like all these things go through your head because you want to make the right decision. But, and then I, I kept telling myself, I'm like, there's a lot of things that I'm certain about that a lot of people, if they hear it, would say you're crazy. And this is no different. And it's just they haven't done the research. You know, it's like bring up 9-11 being a inside job or 9-11 being, you know, whatever, like 9-11, anything that had to do with the government possibly being connected and letting it happen to 9-11. People would just get emotional and get upset. And But if they did and they were emotional and upset, it didn't mean I was wrong and it doesn't mean I should rethink my views. Like I've gotten to that point and I've, I've came to this result based on some open-minded thinking and research. So like 
no much, no matter how much pushback I got uh, in regards to vaccines, I'm like, I had to keep reminding myself, I'm like, I've, I've done the research and I've op- opened my mind to every perspective. And I've gotten to this point based on the research I've done. And if I go back and do more research, it's just going to reflect the same things. And I'm going to come to the same point, but I would, I would go back and I'm like, you know what, let me rewatch some old documentaries back in the day you could actually find anti-vaccine documentaries on amazon prime or youtube or netflix or wherever maybe not netflix but definitely amazon prime there's a few and the you know and i would go back i'd, I'd start re reading the history again i'd start researching and i'm like yeah I, I wasn't crazy i came to this conclusion because this makes way more sense than what these experts, quote unquote, uh, are saying, and there's been very little to no studies on this. There's tons of adverse reactions that they don't talk about. Um, this idea that, uh, and it was funny because this is uh, something I've said on my podcast a bunch, but I think it's a perfect metaphor. It's a perfect example. And I was, some people are sick of hearing it, but like, if I give everybody peanut butter in the world, I'm like, some people are going to have an allergic reaction. So even something as harmless as peanut butter can kill some people if I gave it to everybody and by mandated it to everybody. So you're mandating a vaccine. And then when people have adverse reactions or get autistic symptoms or whatever, you're saying that didn't happen because apparently yeah. vaccines created by big pharma and they, there's a warning label with with side effects and all this stuff. And there's a vaccine court and there's people who've been harmed by the. You can ignore all that. And you're telling me, that vaccines are safer than peanut butter. I'm like, yeah. it, it, it doesn't make any sense. Like it, there's nothing that you can mandate and give to every single person in the world and you're gonna have the exact same result. So this idea that you're giving it to everybody and you're ignoring the fact that some people are gonna have adverse reaction, okay? You can make the argument that, hey, like if one person gets hurt or if there's um, some people get hurt, it doesn't mean that, it's harmful. It just means that some people had adverse reactions, but people won't even go that far. They won't even admit that that some of these parents that are saying that their kids lost cognitive ability, yeah. that cognitively they see a decline was be- right after the vaccine. Like people wouldn't even admit that. And I'm just like, are you saying these parents are crazy? Are you saying that they're wrong? I'm like, if I'm a parent and Dale Big Tree have said this over and over again, I'm pretty sure we've discussed it on my show and I've told him out uh, how important of a point this is. I'm like, if I'm a parent, the last resort is I had any control over my kid's autism and his cognitive decline. Like yeah. that's literally the last thing I'm going to even ponder on or think about because God forbid I have to live with the fact that it could have been avoided. Yeah. So you were most the parents, mm-hmm. yeah, most parents don't come to that conclusion no. unless all the other things have been exhausted. So it's only after all the other things have been exhausted. Do you come to the conclusion that like, you know what? I can't ignore it anymore. He started acting different or she started acting different after she got the vaccine. It has to be related to the vaccine. And then you start doing your research and you realize like, oh, okay, there's no placebo studies. Oh, okay. Like there's been people who've had adverse reactions. There's a a, a VAR system that, you know, what was it, Harvard, uh, who, who did a study and said like 1% of adverse reactions are actually inputted in the VAR system and the vaccine adverse reaction system. And it's like, so who knows what the real number is? And um, the vaccine courts have been giving up millions of dollars. Uh, 
and, and they're yeah. about four billion now. Yeah, and and then also during the Reagan administration, the va- the big big pharma told vax uh, or told a uh, uh, Reagan that hey, like we're losing money on vaccines because people are suing us, people are having adverse reactions. So if you don't give us immunity, then we're gonna you know stop producing vaccines and it's gonna be dangerous to the public. So they gave them a vaccine court where you know they don't have any liability anymore and then what did you see with the vaccine schedule after that you started seeing an increase and increase and increase and getting a vaccine on the schedule it's like printing out money and you know so to to me it's like it, it you do you do get pushback and i do find myself sometimes struggling with do i say nothing and and avoid a possible conflict because i don't like conflict but the only thing I don't like more than conflict is propaganda and lies being spread. And when somebody says something that isn't right, I mean, I I saw it with COVID. I would get, I remember there was a, I don't know if it was like Easter or some holiday that I ruined. I, I, I mean, I blame it. I blame myself because I probably should have kept my opinions to myself, but some family members were spewing some stuff that wasn't true. And I try, and I always try to find a very polite way of like getting my point across and stating my opinions without offending anybody. But like you said, the unfortunate thing, it seems like so many people get emotional and they, they go to name calling, right? Because you have the facts, they don't, you have, you're better informed and they're not. So what they do is they call you a conspiracy theorist or they call you an anti-vaxxer or they call you a, I'm like, okay, that's fine. That That's fine. I can, I can deal with some name calling, but can we stick to the details? Am I wrong when I state this? Am I wrong when I state that? Am I, you know, when I, was I wrong when I said that ivermectin and uh, hydroxychloroquine was being uh, demonized, even though these were considered in the medical world until COVID safe drugs? Uh, was I wrong when I when when I said that ventilators were killing more people than they're helping? Um, was I wrong when I said, hey, not even the vice president and president Joe Biden, uh, before they got in office, said they would take the vaccine yeah. when Trump was in office, and now they're promoting it everywhere, and and Biden's taking it on camera, which was probably a fake vaccine because it's all theater, and there's no way they would even risk him having a adverse reaction on camera and you know and because people do pass out and people do have feel dizzy or whatnot i know many people in my personal life that didn't feel great and and some of them were even hospitalized after getting uh, vaccinated so it's like why would they risk that and ruin the whole agenda vaccine agenda so it's like to, to me it's just like it's it's hard because it's like i i don't like conflict i don't like that weight on my shoulders of like, ah, oh, we butt heads with this person. And, you know, I, every time I see him, there's, you know, that's going to be the last conversation we had. And, and a lot of these topics become emotional topics. People don't know how to discuss them without getting upset and without getting, you know, worked up. And now people can, but it's like, where were you when, you know, that's why I, I give so much credit to the people during COVID. Um, you know, not just myself, but like all the people who came on my show who, I mean, I had a little bit to lose, but not as much as Dr. Peter McCullough, not as much as Dr. Robert Malone, not as much as all these people who, you know, the um, James Corbett's, the uh, the Ryan uh, Christian from Last American Vagabond, all, all these people who were willing 
to speak out when it was difficult because now it's easy. Like most people can come to the conclusion that like, you know what, we probably were lied to. Yeah, maybe if Dr. Fauci wasn't a great guy, people can accept that and they could digest that a little easier. But at the time when like every time you brought it up, it was a fight and you would get, yeah. I mean, I got it. I never spend as much time on social. I, I post and I leave. Like I post, oh, here's a new episode and I leave. I'm like, if people really want to have a conversation with me, they really want to hear my opinions. I'm sharing a 90 minute conversation and I have hundreds of 90 minute conversations. If you want to hear my thoughts, go listen to my podcast. I'm like, I'm not shy. I'm li listen to my, I'm not going to bicker with somebody and go back and forth on social media, on Twitter or on, but during COVID, like it was one of the few times that I actually got a few times caught up into these online arguments and, and because I would post something and I would just get a thousand attacks from people I knew and people. And I'm like, Oh my God. I'm like, these people are, are, are they, they're all brainwashed. They yeah. all believe that all of a sudden big pharma who has paid more, you know, uh, fines in any industry in the world for, for lying about their products are now a moral industry. All of a sudden politicians who we all agree lie and only care about donations and their own personal um uh you know growth financially and and politically uh all of a sudden care about your well-being you know and it didn't matter how many examples would come out that that wasn't true so my point of bringing up covid is because it's such a recent example of how you can literally go through the greatest hoax the greatest you know uh um lie in human history and i say that because it probably is because it's the only lie or hoax or event that happened in human history that literally affected every single person on this planet there's not one person on this planet that wasn't somewhat uh you know affected by covid and maybe some you know people in the amazon somewhere who don't have tv or radio but like for the most part the majority you know 99 percent of people were affected by it we all experienced it together we all can reflect and say without a doubt they lied about some things without a doubt we were misled without a doubt you know, I mean, in Canada, Rogan just brought it up recently with uh, with Tony Hinchcliffe, you know, and, and it's true, like all case mortalities are up now in Canada, like uh, and, and the, the life expectancy just went down like two and a half years since 2020, which is like never happened before. And it's like everybody just puts their hands up like, oh, I wonder what it could be like. I wonder it had nothing to do with a experimental vaccine that wasn't even a vaccine. It was mRNA technology. It didn't work like a traditional vaccine. And they force fed it everybody and told everybody, hey, you want your life back? Get this. Yeah. And if you really want your life back, don't just get it. Convince everybody else to get it. And then talk about openly talk about your medical personal medical information like hey which vaccine did you get it was the first time i saw people at the gym and at the grocery store being like, hey i got the pfizer which one did you get like like the pokemon cards and you're supposed to collect them all like it's just yeah. insane and as you can tell i still get worked up it's one of the few topics that still gets me worked up because it affected my family my yeah. friends affected me it affected my personal relationships but in it all came the union of the unwanted which was a a blessing um, and came a lot of other great people that I connected with, like yourself and many others that are now doing shows. I mean, you obviously started a, a show after COVID. Charlie Robinson started one after COVID. Like a lot of great people and people that I consider friends are now 
I feel like closer with them and and connected with them at a level that probably I wouldn't have if, if it wasn't for COVID. I, I agree. Um, you know, my personal experience with Dorona is my life, my society, my social circles were slashed. Here's an example. Before the Rona came to town, that bitch, excuse my terminology, I was really heavily involved with the art scene here, Lowell. You know, emceeing, producing music, this and that, school programs. And that was a big part of my life for close to 15 years. And when Rona came to town, and as a side note, I knew as soon as it came down, I'm like, this is not about health. This is about power and control. But my whole social circles were slashed. All my emceeing jobs, right? Gone. Gone. Dried up like the Sierra. And in the local arts community, because I chose not to participate in an experimental treatment. I did my research like you. I was a pariah, man. Literally. I'm Here's another example. I have many of them. I'm full of it or full of them. I haven't quite decided that yet. But in 2019, for the local blue society that I was part of, which is one of the biggest ones in the country, by the way, I was volunteer of the year for 2019. I mean, I, I have a trophy. I was presented to them in an award ceremony, the whole nine yards. I mean, hey, you know, a year later, I was persona non grata, bro. Literally persona non grata. I remember I went to an event. And this is kind of after things started opening up. And I went to say hi to a friend, longtime friend. I hadn't seen a long time. And her boyfriend literally got in front of me and pushed me away. And now he's a class A douchebag. But still, that aside, literally pushed me away. And I stepped back. I'm like, with the world looking. My friend looked and he says, yeah, well, you're unvaccinated. And I was like, fine. I just turned around and walked away. That's what I got time and time again. Um, and even to this day, those people who I used to consider friends aren't my friends anymore, but I guess an advantage. And I'll conclude with this. At least now I know who my friends are. And I cherish that. So it's a crazy world we're living in, Mr. Ricky. You know, with the... The vaccine and this whole response, I view it as a test exercise of the globalist plans. You know, you know, I know, because we've been aware they've been building this panoptagon of laws and regulations and emergencies, this and emergency that. And I think it was the first time that they really pulled the lever to see if it would work. And sadly, I think it worked better than their expectations because you think about it, they put out the flu. Okay. Well, it killed some people. Yeah, no doubt. Okay. I had it three times. And the only reason I knew I had it is because I compared symptoms with people that I recently with that were going through full-blown COVID at the time. I've known people that have had multiple shots and have COVID multiple times. I have a lot of friends now that are coming down with these diseases that I never even heard of up until about 2021. Here's an example. I have a friend whose son lost both kidneys, teenage son, boom. And fortunately, the Lord above 
brought him somebody that donated their kidneys. So he survived it. I have another friend who lost one kidney. I have another friend who's now with kidney issues. I have people with turbo cancers. And my prayer list seems to getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the common thing throughout all of them is when I ask, what caused this? Every single time you get the glass look and they're like, the doctors don't know. The doctors are puzzled. And it just drives me nuts that none of these people can see the forest from the trees and they won't even ask the question, what changed? What changed in 2021? Hmm. Could the reason that people are having these adverse effects, which are known adverse effects from the vaccine, be caused by the vaccine? You and I and other people like us, we know the answer. But the normies who are going through this don't. And the sad thing is the doctors refuse, refuse to acknowledge that maybe it was the shot and all that stuff. So it's just, it's a weird time we're living at. I wish that more people would be able to wake up to see the lies that are being presented to them. But sadly, because of propaganda, which is at levels like no other, so sophisticated, with the Smith Moot Remodernization Act, where now it is legal for the government to participate in propaganda domestically. And my opinion on that is when you give a power to a tyrant, right? You don't think they're going to freaking use it, people? Come on, wake up. So I will conclude like you. And that was a long answer to a short question. But I think both of us see and a lot of us see what's really going on. And I wish more people would see it, you know? I, but it's it's so deep rooted. The thing about propaganda is, and, you know, for your listeners who aren't familiar with this, I'm sure they they are. Uh, but, you know, you look at the the techniques of Edward Bernays, Sigmund Freud's nephew, and just understanding that you can motivate somebody, you can manipulate somebody, you can sway somebody subconsciously without them maybe knowing it. I mean, that's all tactics that Edward Bernays wrote about that eventually be, got became the tactics they use in marketing and public relations and all these things. And they understand. I mean, that's the thing about marketers. It's like they understand how to get you to buy something, to want something, to need something. It's about controlling the culture. Um, humans are complex and simple at the same time. And there's things that sway us in one direction or another that they understand and it's not a fair fight because what they've done is that they've invested tons of money in research and development and tons of money in understanding what motivates you what sways you what colors what sounds what sights will get you to want something or dislike something or how to frame something a certain way to make you like the way I'm saying it or like, you know, or have a, a specific opinion on this issue. I mean, there's a reason why there's speechwriters. There's not speechwriters because people running for president can't talk and share their ideas. It's because they're not there to share their personal ideas. They're there to try to convince you to vote for them. And that means understanding what to say, how to say it, 
what not to say, and all these other things that are basically brainwashing techniques and are basically social engineering techniques. I mean, that's the thing about all, all this. It's all, you know, social engineering. It's the psychology of control, um, which is a, actually a, a great uh, a film by uh, Richard Grove. And uh, I, if I give anybody some homework, like definitely check out State of Mind, The Psychology of Control. Richard Grove's a dear friend of mine. One of my favorite all-time documentaries, just because it goes through the whole history of how people have been controlled by people. And that hasn't changed. The only difference is it's not quite as obvious now. Before, we had kings and queens and monarchies. And it's like, okay, they're the ones who want to control the people. We can point at them. We know who they are. They make it obvious. And today, it's not obvious. Now it's it's you know we're convinced that you know it's a it's about democracy it's about the people it's about um, what we want and whatnot you know but even the the idea of democracy you know should be questioned everything should be questioned I mean uh, I think it was I forget who said it but like democracy is is two wolves and a sheep deciding what's for dinner it's like yeah that's yeah, democracy, democracy isn't good too like we get we get told that like hey you know. Just keep repeating this. Oh, yeah, in America, we're a democracy. Like, democracy is always right. Well, not if you're a minority. No. If you're a and majority. We don't, we don't live in a democracy. That's what gets me is democracy, democracy. I see it everywhere. From the top down to the bottom, I'm like, people, we do not live in a democracy. In fact, our founding fathers despise democracies because it's the majority rules and the minority, the 49%, well, you're screwed at the 51% want to say, hey, well, I'm hungry. So what are we going to have for dinner, Mr. Wolf? Hey, let's take that sheep. All right, cool. We live in a constitutional republic that is a government which is based on laws, not men. Democracy is based upon people. And it is a system that through a representative democracy, if you will, the rights of the minorities are protected because it's based upon laws, not people. And I could talk to you for hours, my friend, but I know you have a guest coming up and I think you have to pop off in about uh, five minutes or so. I, is that correct? I, I, I actually, just in case this went long, I did put a uh, event, uh, contact them and push it back a little bit to give me a little bit of buffer time between the shows. So uh, I, I am doing another show, uh, you know, 15, 20 minutes, hour, half an hour from now, whenever the hell we decided to uh, to push it back. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm not in that big of a rush because cool. I did cool. give myself a little bit of, of buffer time. So no need to panic. <laughs> well, give me a signal. Give me about five minutes before you have to go, because I don't want to end this conversation. I'm having too good of a time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I can go. Uh, let's go. Let's go another 10 minutes. All right, cool. Let me set my timer here. I got it. Cool. So. Yeah. So on that topic, uh, state of mind, psychology of control, I highly recommend people checking out another Canadian documentary or not another, but a Canadian documentary that is really good that I highly recommend people checking out was, uh, and I had somebody from the film on years ago, that was called The Corporation. And it was, they spent like 10 years uh, researching uh, for this documentary. And it really went into how intricate and detailed um, corporations go into their marketing schemes and plans and how they understand how to sway you in one direction or another or get you to want something or like something. And, um, you know, one example I, I use is, uh, you know, like back in the day, they used to market things um, like a car by telling you the great features it had, like, oh, hey, now this car has power windows or has AC or whatever. And then they understood, like, the way to get somebody to buy something isn't 
necessarily selling you on the product, but it's the feeling the product will give you. So what they would do is they change the marketing uh, plan and they're like, hey, let's, when we have a Cadillac commercial, even though GM owns Cadillac and owns uh, Chevy pickup trucks, you would think like, why wouldn't the commercials look alike, right? Or why wouldn't there be some uh, connection or link between the two if it's if it's uh, you know run by the same company? But they understand that they're completely two different markets and two different buyers. The Cadillac, they have a guy in a three-piece suit with a luxury watch, dressed really nice, going into the car. So what they're doing is they're not selling you the car. They're selling you the image the car will give you. When they have a pickup truck commercial, by GM, the same manufacturer. What do they do? Deep, rugged voice doing the narration for the commercial, right? And mm -hmm. what they're doing is selling you that when I buy a pickup truck, the image I'm going to put out there is that I'm tough and rugged. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm a blue collared guy who gets my hands dirty, these type of things. So they're indirectly selling you images and what you're buying isn't the product you're buying the image the product will give you and right. you know that's what they're doing and it's all it's no different than like minivan commercials when uh car makers understood that they should have uh minivan commercials that attract kids because kids can influence purchase purchase by the parents so it's like make the minivan look fun for the kids, have them jumping in, jumping out, having all this room. Like what you're doing is you're not marketing to the parent, you're marketing to the child who's going to help sway the parent. So it's like all these indirect ways of getting you to buy something. And the thing is like, it's not just selling you, it's not just corporations selling you products. It's government selling you wars. It's big pharma selling you medications and vaccines. It's, literally the whole world is is motivated by their own interests and they'll go to any lengths to get what they want and in many cases the way they do that is by manipulating you by lying to you by propaganda techniques and it's always been like that and it, it just you know basically the whole everything's a lie like you have to question everything you yes, there's yeah. You know, I remember watching this documentary called The Syndrome. And as a parent, there's also a, another one called um, uh, Something Maya, Take Care of Maya or something like that's on Netflix. Well, we'll just, you know, pull your heartstrings. If you're a parent, like it was it was hard to watch. There's very few documentaries have emotionally affected me as much as that one. But as a parent, it just really pulled at your heartstrings. But The Syndrome was another one very similar. And it's a little older, but the syndrome was about shaking baby syndrome, right? So there's all these parents who'd bring their kids to the hospital and, you know, or call 911 or whatever, something happened with their kid. And experts came to the conclusion that these kids were shaken, yeah. that it was shaking baby syndrome. They're shaking them. And that's what caused these symptoms. And the parents should be arrested and the kids should be taken away from them. And so these parents were having their children taken away from them some of them were locked up okay i i mean imagine this having a toddler or having a newborn and being locked up for harming your child and all these things were going on and these experts were testifying that you know that's what was happening and then the beautiful thing about the world is sometimes you need 
virgin eyes. You need somebody from the outside, somebody from a different perspective to come in and reanalyze things. And they're usually the ones who can kind of turn things upside down and give you a fresh perspective. Well, a expert in car crashes who understood neck and head damage and, and what happens when you're, when somebody gets shooken, looked at this information and I can't, it's been a while since I watched this documentary, so I don't know how he got wrapped up in this, but I think maybe somebody reached out to him, told him to look at this. And he goes, there's no way this the, this damage could be from shaking a baby because we would see, it would be consistent with a car crash, so you would see neck damage. Like, you can't shake somebody hard enough to give them brain damage and not also give them some type of neck damage and injury. So there's no neck injury, so these babies weren't shaken. Like, Either they fell and hit their head or something else, but you're blaming the parent for shaking the baby. And these weren't. Sh- so this guy, you know, who, who was a part of car crash or whatever, comes in and turns the whole thing upside down. And all these parents who were locked up for for, you know, locked up for harming their children, all these people who were uh, uh, had their kids taken away, you know, were completely innocent. And it was experts, quote unquote, who put them in prison. It was experts who testified, just like Kennedy said. Uh, and I don't know which interview he did because he's done a lot. <laughs> I don't know which interview he did where he, he said this. But he he said, every time I sue a chemical company or, for, or any company, they have an expert on their side. And I have an expert with the same credentials or, you know, or similar credentials saying that they're completely wrong and their experts saying uh, mine is completely wrong. So just one expert's opinion doesn't mean jack shit. You know, I don't know if I could swear on here. I probably should ask. But all you want, brother. But, it, you know, it, does, it doesn't mean anything, you know. So, and, you know, I've, I've, I've talked about this on my show numerous of times because it's such a great example of how experts, like, don't trust experts, do your own research, Think for yourself. And just because the experts aren't suggesting it doesn't mean that alternatives don't exist. Um, when I had Jim Abrams on the show uh, from uh, the Naked Gun uh, movies, I was a big fan of Naked Gun movies. So having a reason to get him on my show was uh, a huge honor. It was some of the funniest movies growing up. Uh, if you haven't seen Naked Gun, go back and watch a very slapstick, funny uh, couple movies. But when, when I had him on, he, uh, I had him on to talk about the Charlie Foundation. And what the Charlie Foundation was, was influenced by his son's story. And the son was born with some type of issue where he would have these violent seizures daily. You know, tons of them, tons of them. I mean, it was giving him brain damage. It was it was putting stress on the family. Put it, they, and Jim Abrams at the time was very well-known filmmaker, had access to all the best hospitals and experts and doctors. And they just gave him pill after pill and in surgery, and nothing was working, and nothing was helping. One day, just being in, you know, doing his own research, he comes, uh, he runs into this book where they talk about John Hopkins having success in the, or I think it was early 70s or early 80s, um, with curing kids of these violent seizures using the ketogenic diet. So what was happening was that getting these kids on the ketogenic diet and getting their bodies in ketosis, their brains could use ketones as energy and it would uh, prevent uh, many of these kids from having these violent seizures. He goes to his doctor and he's like, Hey, uh, you know, years of pills and surgeries and whatnot 
Um, like, how come you haven't suggested this to me? And his doctor says, oh, that seems really hard. And he's like, harder than traveling all over the country, going to the experts, having surgery, taking a bunch of prescription pills that aren't working and having side effects. Like, are you kidding me? So he gets upset, gets his kid on the ketogenic di diet, Charlie. Eventually, his child, uh, or and or soon after being on a ketogenic diet, is is completely symptom free. Has no seizures ever. Years down the line, his son Charlie actually thought like, "Hey, maybe it was just a coincidence that I changed my diet, and all of a sudden these seizures went away." So he starts eating normal again, or the way he used to eat, and the seizures come back. So he's like, "Okay, apparently it wasn't an accident. Like it was, you know, because of uh, the ketogenic diet." And he ends up. Uh, uh, Jim Abrams ends up starting the Charlie Foundation, named after his son, to look into dietary and other alternative uh, methods of curing disease and illnesses, and even did a movie called Do No Evil or Do Do No Harm or something like that, uh, that was uh, based on um, his, his son's story, and it goes into it. And so my point is, and the reason why that story is so important, is that he went to the doctors, his doctor said, these are the only treatments for your kids' illnesses. They're the experts. They have PhDs on the wall. They, they're supposed to know all the possible treatments and all the possible ways of helping you and curing you and, and treating you. And they didn't. Mm -hmm. He did some research and he found out that, you know what? There were alternative uh, treatments and they did work. And just because your doctor's not suggesting it to you doesn't mean it's pseudoscience and it's complete nonsense. That's what doctors will convince you of, that they're the all-knowing and, and their religion of scientism says that they're the priests of their religion and they're the pope of their religion and you should listen to them and you shouldn't translate the Bible. The Bible should only be read by the hierarchy. So it's like, that's literally the world we live in. And, and the thing is, so... My point is, after this very long rant, and I probably took up all time. <laughs> we're, we're both the same. So go, brother, go, go, go. But it just, you know, my, my point is like, question everything, especially the experts. Not, you know, there's a great uh, uh, short uh, documentary that James Corbett did actually before COVID, which was only became more relevant after COVID called The Crisis of Science. You can go on CorbettReport.com, look up Crisis of Science. I, I think you'd probably just even find out on Rumble or um, Rockfin or any of the other uh, platforms he's on, and you put in the crisis of uh, science, James Corbett, a crisis of science, Corbett Report, you'll find it. It's about all these examples of science manipulating studies, getting the outcome that they want, lying, being debunked. I mean, the percentage of studies that can't be recreated is like, I forget what the number is. It's something insane, you know? Yeah. And it's it, why can't you recreate these studies if if it's all about science? It's also the fact that you can easily manipulate the studies to get the outcome that you want. That the idea that social media or science or big tech or any of these things are neutral parties and that everything is run by people, everything is controlled by people, and those people have ideas, perspectives, and opinions, and those things will affect the way they look at the information and the way they curate information. So it's just one of those things you you, you have to realize that like every, the majority of people out there have motives. I remember when Dr. Robert Malone was on my show, the one of the uh, guys who uh, inventors of the mRNA vaccine, he talked about when he was at the university and they were first patenting it, how much infighting there was 
with like everybody wanting to be a part of this patent and how much of how much of the 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 university culture and the peer review culture was about ego it was about like having my name on the paper it was about my career it was about me you know becoming famous because of this and uh so and and he talked about how you know you could tell like he was uncomfortable with that culture and that like he cared about science he cared about learning and exploring and and coming up with new discoveries and uh he didn't care about all any of those other things and you know and i think that's why he became kind of an outsider and why he became kind of demonized because he didn't play into that game and um, and he didn't he didn't like that culture, but that culture exists everywhere. Anybody who works at a corporate company who, who've been who's been backstabbed by another employer or backstabbed by another company or backstabbed you know, or just witnesses backstabbing or behind closed door deals and, you know, people doing favors for each other because of who they know or, you know, or whatever, like that stuff happens everywhere. It's not just at your employer. It's not just at your little town. You live in a little town. Every little town I've ever been to talks about how corrupt their politics are. Guess what? They're corrupt everywhere. Like that's just the way the world works. People have to wake up to that. Yeah. The way I look at it is I got a, a saying when it comes to power, shit floats and the turds at the top, bring up the other turds to keep them company. And that is universal across local governments, um, colleges, science, anything you can apply that to. But Ricky, I could talk to you all day. Maybe we'll have to have you back on here and we'll continue these conversations. But I think we're hitting the top of the show in. So before we go, let my audience know where they can find you. So the audio versions of the Ripple Effect podcast is available everywhere. It's iTunes, Spotify, uh, whatever app you use podcasts addict or, or whatnot and then uh the video is available in many places uh, the only place it's the the full episodes aren't available on youtube i do have a clips channel that i'm trying to build but uh i neglect quite a bit but there is a clips channel uh on youtube so if you find that channel it it, it is my official channel it's not a fan or whatnot and uh and you'll find uh, clips of just sometimes past shows that I think maybe new listeners uh, don't know about that, that maybe they f would find interesting. So I'll put little clips on there for people to go back and check out some of those great past guests that I've had on. Um, but the, you can find the full videos on Bandot Video, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, Minds, and I'm probably forgetting some. Um, but there's definitely uh, most of the alternative media uh, video platforms. Uh, you can find the Ripple Effect podcast on there. You can find all these links and more on the rippleeffectpodcast.com. You can also find the Union of the Unwanted on my website. And the Uni Union of the Unwanted is live streamed every other, well, we try to do every other Monday from um, at 7 p.m. Eastern time on Rockfin. And then soon after, the video is also available on our Odyssey channel. And then also the audio is available everywhere. So Usually we live stream. I know some people are like, oh, it's on Rockfin. I'm not on Rockfin. Usually within 48 hours, the, the audio is available everywhere. And then the video will eventually also be available for free on our Odyssey channel. So um, you can find those links usually on any of the Ripple Effect podcasts. Uh, show descriptions, just go down to the bottom. You'll find our, our link tree for the Union of the Unwanted. And they'll have links to all that stuff and much more. And we have tons of amazing guests, including Nature Boy, who's been a uh, a guest on there quite a, a few times. And uh, and I'm sure many more to come. So 
Uh, it's a great panel show. Uh, if you want, you know, like the, these type of conversations are great. And then if you want a, a roundtable panel show where we're bouncing ideas off each other, the Union of the Unwanted is probably one of the, the better ones out there because it's such a unique um, unique show in regards to the type of guests that come on and the different type of backgrounds and perspectives that we we bring on to the show. So it, it, it's not like a a echo chamber of a bunch of people just agreeing with each other. It's it's a lot of different researchers and a lot of different people with different perspectives. And everybody is very honest and everybody is willing to push back a little bit if they need to. And uh, but do it in a civil way where we're really just trying to learn from each other and not just trying to critique each other. So uh, definitely fun shows. Uh, and I and I really appreciate you having me on. It's it's an honor to be on your very first episode. I'm very excited to see where the show takes you and all your, uh, you know, your, your other guests that you have coming on and all your conversations and how this thing will expand and grow. And uh, of course, if I can help in any way, I will. And, and please, people, support Nature Boy and the great work that he's doing. Like I told him before we start recording, what are you more truth seekers and truth tellers out there? So the more podcasters we have out there uh, putting out interesting and thought-provoking conversations, uh, the better. So um, I'm glad that you finally uh, are ready to record episode one and and um, and probably be a little afraid because I know I was when I first put on my first episode. <laughs> I would be a liar if I said I was not a tad bit nervous, my friend. I would be an absolute liar. Boy, I can't believe how fast this show has gone by. I mean, we've done probably close to an hour and 15, hour and a half, and we do have to wrap. And I want to thank you, Ricky, for being my first guest, for being a mentor, for being a friend, and for producing your content. I have thoroughly enjoyed your shows. I have learned a bunch about them, and I, the Union of the Unwanted, I'm going to give a little confession here is about the only show that I watch live and I make it a point to watch live when it's on. I'm like, Ooh, the union's on. Oh, nothing else is happening. House is burning down. Well, I'll put it out when the union's over. Boom. So thank you, Ricky. And um, for all of you out there that are listening out there, thank you for tuning into the first episode. My podcasts, the video can be found on rumble and that's at naughty by nature with nature boy and naughty is spelled in a uti as in nautical and those that know me know that's very apropos the audio version can be found on all podcast providers i'm still working on apple but that is the only one but i'll have that done soon and hopefully i'll be able to expand out to other issues so if you liked what you heard everybody you heard sorry i mispronounced that share it with your friends go out hit me on twitter um i just made a show it's called naughty by nature with nature boy i'm on twitter hit me an i am if you want to be on the show let me know if you have guest suggestions let me know if you like it let me know if you hate it hate listeners are welcome people we are as inclusive as inclusive can be so with that ricky I want to say thank you to all the listeners out there. Thank you for everything you do. Support the Ripple Effect. Go to the Union and the Unwanted. Party on Wayne. Party on Garth. And have yourselves a fantastic day. Thank you. <laughs>